Welcome to the Side Hustle of the Small Business Podcast, powered by Hiscox. I'm your host, Sanjay Parekh. Throughout my career, I've had side hustles, some of which have turned into real businesses. But first and foremost, I'm a serial technology entrepreneur. In the creator space, we hear plenty of advice on how to hustle harder and why you can sleep when you're dead. On this show, we ask new questions in hopes of getting new answers. Questions like, how can small businesses work smarter? How do you achieve balance between work and family? How can we redefine success in our businesses so that we don't burn out after year three? Every week, I sit down with business founders at various stages of their side hustle to small business journey. These entrepreneurs are pushing the envelope while keeping their values. Keep listening for conversation, context, and camaraderie. If you live in the Southeast, a rainbow umbrella and a push cart is a sign of something sweet to come. Since 2010, the popsicle treats dubbed King of Pops have dotted public parks, live events, and music festivals offering delicious icy pops in flavors like raspberry lime, orange cream, and absolutely my personal favorite, chocolate sea salt. But behind this sweet success is the story of two brothers and a $7,000 investment. Stephen Karse, along with his brother Nick, founded King of Pops in 2010. Over the last 12 years, the business has grown from a few employees in one production kitchen to a Southeast staple. You can even find them in Whole Foods. On today's episode, Stephen and I talk about the King of Pops origin story, where the famous rainbow umbrella comes from, and the new ventures King of Pops is spearheading, including a cartrepreneur program. This episode is jam-packed with stories and lessons. Stay tuned. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you here, and uh, we're going to get into King of Pops in a minute here, but uh, thanks for coming on. Oh yeah, excited to be here. Thank you. So uh, first, just to get us going, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, like uh, where you're born and raised, where you went to school, like all of those things. Yeah, I was born in Austin, Minnesota. My dad worked for Hormel, and that was one of his many stops that took us to Omaha after that. And then we settled in Atlanta by the time I was uh, just entering kindergarten. So pretty much all I knew. Um, graduated from UGA, uh, got a newspaper degree, and went out West, kind of threw my name in the hat for a sports writer job, which is a very competitive field. Um, got an offer in LaGrange, Georgia and Idaho Falls, Idaho. And I thought, let's head West. Um, I made it about a year in that industry, but learned quite a bit and um, had a short stop in the insurance industry that uh, the Great Recession took care of that for me. And then uh, landed at King of Pops in in 2010. Um, well, I didn't land at it. I started thinking about <laughs> uh, it. It landed on you. You didn't yeah. land on it. Exactly. Uh, it, yeah. it sounds like. So uh, I, I got to ask you, are you like a, a big fan of spam? I mean, your dad worked at Hormel. Oh, yeah. Is that <laughs> Big fan. Yeah. I mean, I think I've had it a few times in my life, but love the uh, marketing for sure. Uh, with the spam mobile was my favorite uh, race car and the NASCAR circuit, although I never went to a race. I remember we always watched it. And I don't know if this is true or not, but my dad would always say that the uh, driver was paid for like how many, how much screen time he got, like he got some bonuses. And so he would like, he'd be in like last place, but when the first place people came, he'd start racing really fast. So he could be (laughs) on the screen for a longer period of time. I thought that was pretty smart. Uh, But yeah, I think uh, spam, pretty cool. We always had we always had spam shirts that we were wearing and um, <laughs> yeah, 
it's a loved product in our family. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I I can imagine that's fascinating. Um, well, we'll talk about spam again in a minute here. Um, so King of Pops, uh, was that your first ever entrepreneurial venture? Venture? Did you do anything like as a kid that was like entrepreneurial ish? Yeah, I was pretty. I mean, I've got my stories. I think the uh, the most entrepreneurial. I just had an eBay business pretty early. I played disc golf, which is a fringe sport that never really has taken off, taken off, but most people are kind of familiar now. You know what that is? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, but do golf. explain it. So in case the listeners don't. Yeah. Know. So it's basically golf, but instead of a hole, you have a, a, a these chains with a bucket or a little contraption that you throw the Frisbees into. Um, and I lived next to a course or fairly course, close to a course that had a couple lakes. So each Saturday I would uh, put on my swimsuit and head on in and, and gather up as many uh, Frisbees of the daring, not that good disc golf players had thrown in there. And some of these things, I mean, would be, most of them were like eight to 10 bucks and I'd ship them to them and I'd end up making three or $4, but a few of them would be like these rare collectible things that would be 30 or $40. So a very high eBay rating early on. I um, also similarly on eBay, I had a friend that was really good at like, EverQuest was, I don't know, World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft is like a similar one now, but he was very good at the game and I was not. But I would do like the business side for him of like, he would be selling swords and these imaginary things, which I mean, I guess with the metaverse is directionally <laughs> what we're going towards um, in some ways. And uh, so we were doing that as well. Those were like some of my uh, high school exploit. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so let's talk about work. So, uh, great recession happens. Uh, you were in insurance. You're like, yeah, that's done. Um, and you're sitting around trying to figure out what to do. Um, how did you decide like to not go get a job and instead start a thing? Like how did that idea come? Yeah. Up? So I was laid off and I, I had like the writing was on the wall for like a year essentially. Um, and so I had a lot of time to think about it and, even with all of that time, I still did go and interview at other insurance um, agencies and considered getting back into it. But I think, I think for me, it was, I was, I had this itch. I knew it was not going to be easier later in life other than maybe having more money, but also having a family and a bunch of other responsibilities. I, I essentially had zero responsibilities. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I come from a family that really loves to tell stories. And my dad is a master embellisher, but uh, <laughs> I didn't, I kind of didn't want to not have given it a shot. If it's something that I, I felt like, I just felt like it was as good a time as any. Um, so it seems simple, but uh, that, that was really it. I think, I think I just yeah. didn't want to have not done it. And I felt like if I didn't do it, then I'd never do it. Like, yeah, it was the nudge that some, uh, God or some other force was, was nudging me to, into, and, um, I'm, I'm really thankful for it. Yeah. So, uh, w when you made this decision, um, pretty widely accepted by the family, everybody was in your corner or yeah, was anybody saying story. like, what are you thinking? I think, I think everyone was in my corner, um, and was, was supportive because I didn't have a job. <laughs> My brother, on the other hand, uh, had had uh, finished law school at, and uh, had a job as a lawyer. So about four or five months in, when I knew it was going to be, I needed, needed to hire someone to help me or hopefully he could help. Um, 
that was not universally loved by the <laughs> by the family because he had a nice income and had just yeah. gone to school for a very specific uh, degree and all of that. But yeah, I yeah. think when I started out, pr- pretty well supported. I mean, my brother, the brother that is my business partner, fifty fifty, uh, was so supportive that I was just living on his his couch rent free for uh, that period of time, um, which was nice. Nice. Couch. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, uh, that's an interesting kind of dynamic as well. Like, did you guys talk about it and think about it? Like, what does this mean? Like, what if the business goes bad and yeah. your relationship between the two of you, like, you know, well, the stakes, as far as anything other than time were pretty low. Um, we had invested, I invested $7,000 that I'd saved up, which was essentially on a machine that I probably could have resold for $5,000 or something if I really needed to. Um, and then we weren't paying anybody. So it wasn't like we were starting a venture firm where we pulled a million dollars and we're going to go, uh, get that money out into the market. It was more like, this is going to take some time. And, uh, I mean, he, he did get in very early, but it wasn't, it was a risk for sure, but we had proven out the concept, at least at a single cart that, People were excited about it and we could turn a profit. Um, scaling that to a business is, is a completely different story, but I wouldn't say that there was like a, ever a sense of like, we've got our whole lives on the line. And if we don't make this thing work, yeah, we're, we're, what are we going to ever do? I will yeah. say like the scariest part was every summer. I mean, every winter, we just thought people would forget about it. Like we felt confident that popsicles was a fad which i do think it was a fad like there was a period when it was a more popular food trend um and i think we outlasted the fad by becoming an established business that people liked uh but we were certainly scared every winter of like losing it just because we enjoyed it not necessarily because we didn't feel like there were other streams of income (laughs) that were possible (laughs) i mean and i that's still like i in some ways true today. Like, I don't think that this is the business I would get into if I was trying to maximize my earnings for my entire life, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I would not imagine wanting to do anything else. So, yeah. So why did you decide on popsicles? Like when you were thinking about a company to to start, what, you know, how did you land on popsicles? Yeah. We were, my oldest brother is an anthropologist and we would visit him. Um, he did a lot of his field work in Latin America. So Ecuador, uh, Panama, we would, we went on a bunch of trips in his uh, vicinity where he was. And, uh, the desserts fascinated us in particular, the paleta fascinated, fascinated us. And, um, I think what about it just clicked as a business was like the simplicity of, um, the production process and, the sales process. It's essentially go find some very high quality ingredients, blend them up. They'll usually taste pretty good. And then be at a place where a cold <laughs> uh, impulse buy can happen. And those <laughs> two combinations are pretty, pretty fun to be around because the people are happy to be paying you whatever the price you set for something that is unexpectedly delicious. And when you're, it's just like in the U S I mean, you can go to an ice cream shop that is, uh, average, uh, below average or 
like memorable. And when you find the memorable ones, when we were traveling, we found the memorable ones, like we just kept chatting about it and we would try to find one that was as good or better. And uh, so we we became fascinated with the product and what was happening here in the U S very much like a people thinking more about what they're putting in their body. I think like the food truck and farmer's market scene was burgeoning um, and really kind of taking off. And so it seemed like logically there were some pieces that were going to make sense, but um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, So, okay. Let's, let's start about uh, you mentioned uh, the startup capital. So was it just seven thousand dollars, and that that was all in what it cost to start up the business initially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven thousand is the number. Um, the machine, I guess, to go into a bit more detail, I got a used machine from a, another popsicle company um, in Texas. Kind of a long story how that ended up happening, but the machine that I purchased from new, uh, the guy had some shady dealings, and lo and behold, the the machine never arrived. And he felt bad <laughs> enough about it that uh, he helped sync me up with this other company that he knew. So I drove out to Texas, got this machine, plugged it into the uh, dryer socket at my brother's house. And <laughs> uh, we were off to the races as far as testing. By the time we made anything for actual sale, we, we had a kitchen and all that. But um, but yeah, that was the startup. I mean, we had a little bit of money that you needed obviously for ingredients and such, right. but very nominal. I mean, essentially grocery money was, we were just putting it into popsicle form and consuming it. So we're getting our caloric intake that way. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So how, how long did it take then? So once you kind of bought that machine and got going to figure out the, the initial ingredients and recipes and, and, and figure out and like, okay, we're set and let's start selling these things. Uh, I set an April 1st deadline for myself. I was laid off in the fall of 2009, figured fall was not the ideal time to start the popsicle business. So I said, no matter what happens, I'm going to start April 1st. A bunch of things went wrong. Um, I mean, as far as the recipe development, I would say we're never done. Like we're constantly tweaking and uh, developing the recipes, but I felt like I had a product that was good enough to put out there. It's terrifying though. I mean, like the, first of all, just people have different tastes and, uh, people like things sweet or not as sweet or tart or not as tart. So by its very nature, you're never going to please everybody. Um, and we kind of just embraced that and made something that we thought was very tasty, um, and, and went with it. But yeah, by April 1st, um, we had, I think probably 12 flavors that we were feeling pretty good about. Okay. Um, many of, many of which are still around today, which I'm proud of when I go down and talk to the production people these days. Um, (laughs) but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I will tell you this. Um, that's fine that you're tweaking recipes. You better never touch my chocolate sea salt because uh, <laughs> that thing is perfection. And if you mess with that recipe, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. you're, you're going to get a call from me. Yeah, you're right. There's some that we, <laughs> some that we really have, have dialed in and that's certainly one of them. But I mean, so yeah. things like on uh, some of the, the berries, for example, you can have between farms, like a berry may be significantly sweeter than the other. And um, right. some of those things you have to kind of tweak or, or a year just might be different for peaches. Um, 
but yeah, yeah. Chocolate sea salt. We're lucky that chocolate, I mean, dairy, I guess can technically change a little bit, but, uh, not, not to my palate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Support for this podcast comes from Hiscox committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams since 1901. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, the business insurance experts. Okay, so let's talk about kind of the brand and the image of King of Pops. Um, I think you all have built a, a just iconic brand and, and with the uh, kind of carts and the rainbow umbrellas and all of that stuff. How did all of that kind of come into play? Uh, how did you think about that? Uh, obviously, like you said, you come from a family of storytellers. So maybe that had something to do with it, but yeah. how, how did you think through this kind of process? So, I mean, it's really fun. Like one of the advantages of living in our age, I think, is you can read all of the old emails. So I, I, I like to look at the email that I was sending to my, my list of 40 people, I think, to come up with the names. I had a list of like seven names that I liked. Uh, King of Pops didn't win the survey uh, really? contest. I think uh, Freya was the favorite and we went with King of Pops anyway, cause I, I just fell in love with, with kind of the, I don't know. I don't think we're, I don't, we're, I think we're on the, on the spectrum on the pretty humble side. Uh, but I liked kind of the tongue in cheekness <laughs> of it. Um, yeah. and, and something about it just really felt right. I mean, uh, having, having the popsicle that that's wearing the King crown there. I mean, I just, yeah. it's, it's iconic. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think we owe a lot of our success to getting lucky with a name and and maybe we can take some credit for, we did select the name, but yeah, I think, I think that part and then branding, I, I, is something I just love. Um, and I don't do any graphic design, but, um, I think I, 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 I guess at news at, at the newspaper, I did like lay out the newspaper. So in some ways <laughs> I, I learned some stuff there, but, um, I knew that that was going to be important or at least I wanted to be important. So it's something we focused on, um, and, and stayed pretty on top of, uh, so the logo creation was, I mean, we probably spent way more time on it than we should for, for a company of our stature with zero sales. Um, <laughs> and then, I mean, I think the other pieces like is more of like editing, like a lot of things come at you and, and we were never so strict with the brand that we did allow things to happen, but we gravitated and grabbed onto the things that we liked. And then other things, once they happened, we were just like, mm, nah. and that's the same with flavors. Like we would make any flavor. Um, and then if it didn't go well, we would just say, ah, that didn't work and let it pass on. So the rainbow umbrella was as simple as that. It was just one of the umbrellas that was on the Walmart shelf. We needed the <laughs> umbrella. Um, and then we're like, huh, that kind of looks nice and, uh, leaned into it since then. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think we're pretty, we're a very nimble, some would say too nimble. I think like the the biz term on that is like shiny things. Like we very much are attracted to shiny things and have to like uh, put our blinders on as best we can. But then we are good editors. I think that's something that um, we've done a good job at over the years. Yeah. So, okay. Um, you're getting into this business. Um, there are a lot of shiny things, but there's one shiny thing that you can't ignore, which is kind of food safety and, and dealing with all that. How did you, you know, a lot of people think about wanting to start up food businesses yeah, and, and that feels like a, a hurdle 
um, to a lot of folks and like learning all of that. Like, how did you figure all of that stuff out that, you know, obviously you, you don't want to make people sick. You don't want to get sued yeah. for making people sick. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. so how did you figure all that stuff out? I wish I could say I went to a class ahead of time and figured it out. We actually went to ice cream school a couple of years in and learned quite a lot. Um, in that moment, I think we learned a lot from like the department of ag, like probably people have a lot of bad rap for these government agencies, but they were actually very helpful. Like they wanted us to be a successful business. So that's who we're regulated by, not the department of health. So they would simply say like, Hey, this is not going to work. Here's some things you could do differently, but this isn't acceptable. Um, and then, I mean, I think food safety is, I mean, like a lot of things, you're never done with it and you're never perfect. Like there's always going to be areas that you could improve a process on. So you kind of just have to have it be a constant conversation. Um, I mean, one of the most difficult business decisions we made was we were making product in each of our cities. So we had warehouses in Charleston, Charlotte, um, Asheville at one point, Nashville, and we were making pops locally in each place. And that was really an important piece of our business because we were buying produce locally and we were able to sell it to the people locally. Well, as you scale, uh, food safety is very much a numbers game. And when you make a thousand of something, your chances of, of having something go wrong are, it's the same chance, but it, it, if it's a 0.0001 of a thousand, you're probably in the green. If it's a 0.0001 and you're making 3 million of something, <laughs> then you basically just said you're going to get three people sick and that's absolutely unacceptable. Um, so you need to kind of go from the restaurant level of, um, which is pretty familiar and there's a lot more training to kind of a manufacturing side. And that, that change um, required us to go to a single location. Um, but yeah, I don't have any, I think we went for it and we were, took it seriously at every step of the way. And then as we grew, um, brought in the appropriate resources that were beyond kind of our, our comprehension of things, um, from a, from a, so, so you went, side. you went from, uh, manufacturing in a bunch of places and then kind of consolidated and now only manufacturing one. Is that what I'm correct? Hearing? Yeah. We're in Atlanta now. So we, okay. um, in 2017, we, we went from five production facilities that had like more of a GM operating the kitchens to a single facility. Um, so we could kind of, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of, uh, testing and, and it was just challenging for somebody that wasn't hundred percent focused on it to do. Yeah. And it did not make sense to have some, we, well, we some, the business didn't justify having uh, someone with food safety background in, in all of those places just because of the volume that they were doing. Ah, uh, gotcha. So now, uh, instead of doing that, you're, you're thinking about the logistics and then shipping out from one place to all Correct. the, all the locations. Okay. Yep. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about kind of, uh, the carts. Um, you've got this con cartrepreneur program. Like let's, wh what Easiest is that word ever to say, right? Cartrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I already have a, a tough time spelling entrepreneur. I, I type it all the time, but I still seem to misspell it every yeah. single time. So you're just yeah, making I mean, it a little we'll bit tougher. Well, the SEO on that word is our thought. So uh, <laughs> good idea. See again, <laughs> we'll back see. to the branding and and we'll the, the marketing. That's smart. 
Yeah, so it's um, so with COVID, obviously it impacted a lot of businesses. We're still hearing about it today, hospitality in particular. Um, but the way that our business had grown at, at one point was that we had uh, pretty large corporate clients. They would we had a sales team calling on these corporate clients. They were having large outings or activations from a marketing standpoint where they would want to associate with our brand and we'd make them a special pop and a wrapper and uh, Coke or MailChimp or some of these brands with large budgets would, would pay a pretty good amount uh, for something like that. And additionally, Emory or uh, different universities would have these really large events. As large events stopped happening um, <laughs> for what, what we thought would hopefully be a shorter period of time, but in some ways it's, it's starting to come back. But um, our sales process just did not make sense. And we, we needed to quickly figure out a way to meet people where they were, which instead of at Bonnaroo and, uh, huge corporate events was, Hey, I'm going to have food trucks at my church parking lot, or just in my own backyard, I'm having a barbecue and inviting the neighbors to. And a central sales office wasn't working well for that. And so we we were missing the boat on a lot of these kind of very grassroots last minute events. Uh, we would find out about them after the fact. So we had been asked forever if people could just have one of our carts um, and sell our pops and protect the protective folks that we are. We are just like, nah, things are going fine. Like we don't want to mess it up. Um, we're just thanks, but no thanks. Well, when a pandemic happens and you're a, <laughs> in our case, a popsicle business, like you kind of change your tune a little bit. So we said, okay, yeah, this, this sounds great. Uh, <laughs> We've so been we, meaning to do this the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So we basically just, we, we said yes to something that we had been saying no to for a decade. Um, and our fears were the, the upsides versus the what we were worried about were just so apparent very quickly. Like the authentic connections that people had with their schools or their church or uh, any of the organizations like their softball league or whatever were, were just so authentic. And uh, it was amazing to see how quickly they were able to add opportunities that we had kind of never even thought of. So something that we did just as a, hey, we're just trying to keep the lights on from COVID a couple months in, we're like, okay, this is a great way for us to do business. So uh, we kind of, I reached out, I, I spent the next year basically um, setting up a, a franchise program that I felt like we could be proud of. Like I didn't know it would be franchising to start with. Uh, that's something that has had like the slightest bit of like, didn't feel right to me. Um, so that's why the Carstrepreneur is like the name that we're rolling with. Um, we don't really want to be trying to attract folks that are kind of going through the Rolodex of franchise opportunities, uh, because I think that what we want is a, a community focused, um, hey, this would be great if you've got a 15-year-old kid that you want to teach a little bit about business and you want to make some extra cash instead of just like, uh, and have fun, most importantly, instead of just like, which is the thing that I'm going to make the most money from? Is it 
um, a janitorial service, a bug service, or King of Pops. Uh, and I think those are all great things. And I, I really appreciate the entrepreneurial spirit in all of them. Um, but I wanted to really, it's all about the people. And I think that the people that we want to attract will attract more through either already familiar with our product, which will be like this first wave of people. And then I think the second wave of people, if we do this right, will just be attracted to the the spirit of what we build, um, which that's a real woo-woo vague thing. But I think I think you kind of know it when you see it. I think it's something that you can't necessarily put your finger on for King of Pops in general, but there's something that you do like about it, um, or at least our fans do, that's beyond nice marketing or a tasty product. Um, so that's the that's the origin story and the in it's it's what I'm all in on. So we went from having 350, 400 employees and that sales team that was applying to events and getting us into hundreds of events per week. And now our job is to support our car entrepreneurs, um, help find some more great ones. And we're really uniquely positioned. We have a distribution business called Perfect 10 Foods that we started in 2014. Um, and so we're doing our own self-distribution, which is really important with frozen huh. and we're distributing okay. to the entire South, um, in our own trucks. So we're able to pull our truck into maybe your driveway, or maybe we got to be on the street if you've got a skinny driveway and, uh, and go from <laughs> there, but yeah, okay. it's, it's super exciting. So, so the people that are distributing your product are employees as well then, right? Yeah, so you're, correct. You're, you're touching the product all the way through. Yep. Uh, until it gets delivered. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so the same truck different. that's delivering pops and we have perfect 10 is a distribution company that has about a hundred brands that we represent right now. Uh, okay. A whole nother story. When we started that, we thought it'd be 10 brands. We wanted it to be like, a. Uh, we didn't love the distribution world where we felt like we were getting lost in the catalog of 10,000. Um, so we wanted to make something for brands, our size, where it would be a bit more personal. 10 just didn't work from a business side. Uh, so we understand why people need the 10,000 now, uh, but we're still on the, <laughs> we're still on the much smaller side. Um, and so the same trucks that are delivering to whole foods and uh, about five or 600 accounts um, across the South are also delivering to people's houses or if they've got like a, an office or wherever they're running their business out of. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's fascinating. That's some vertical integration that you've done. Um, is there anything else like that, that you've done? I, I feel like I read something about a farm that you were oh, yeah. thinking about doing it. Yeah. Did very that vertically integrated. Yeah. We have a farm. It's called King of Crops. It's in Winston, yep. Georgia, which is about 30, 40 minutes West of Atlanta. Um, and we grow berries, blueberries, blackberries, um, muscadines, We've got some goji berries. We've got some pawpaw. Um, it's a it's a ambitious project to <laughs> grow your own fruit, um, and so we've got some big ideas there. I think it's it's something where we want to be connected with that farming world. And personally, like Nick and I, get a lot of joy in bringing people out there and having events and such. So uh, we get a small amount of produce from there. One day we hope to get more produce from there um, and, and and keep it rolling. But you're right. Yeah. 
We also compost out there. So compost now has a facility there where it is truly uh, full circle where we could theoretically grow something, make the pop, and then put the uh, whatever's left afterwards back into the earth to make more pops. So, uh, so that's you. You guys are using compost now. The the company that does composting is that. Yeah, we use compost now, but additionally, compost now is composting at our farm. So they do like their Atlanta composting for all of the waste that they pick up in the Atlanta area. It goes out there and gets made into uh, beautiful soil. Awesome! Incredible. Okay. Um, So, last question for you. What does the next 10 years look like for King of Pops? Like, you know, is there some big event that happens? Is it, you know, like King of Pops is international? Like, what, what does it look like? <laughs> 10 years is an interesting time frame. Um, I've got five years, so I'll start there. Uh, I think we got about 300 franchisees. Uh, the distribution company, we've added Florida. Um, so we've got Florida and the entire Southeast. And I think from an event side, yeah, I think we want to maybe a la Sweetwater have like a namesake event um, in the middle of summer where people are just uh, having all the pops they could ever imagine. We do it in the fall. We have like a field day already, um, which is a smaller scale event, but it's it's a lot of the origin story of that was to, we didn't want to sit on a bunch of pops through the winter, so we would give them away. <laughs> Um, but it'd be nice to do something in the middle of the summer when it's super hot. Um, and, and that, that would be nice, but yeah, we're laser focused on perfect 10 and growing out that business, um, as a distribution business. And then I'm specifically focused on cartrepreneur program and, and growing that out. It's the model that we want to expand our business with and feel like it is all of the right mixture of a, a huge opportunity with a really high ceiling. It's fun to feel like you're providing something that people will really appreciate on a scale that is even larger than a popsicle. So it's like it's going to impact their lives positively. Um, and then we get to enjoy we get to enjoy kind of bringing some new people into the fold and have their ideas be uh, brought to life. It's really it's really really lucky to to get to do it every day. Uh, I'll tell you if you're going to do a King of Pops event, and especially if it's a all you can eat pops. I will be there. Your first ticket sold right All there. All right, uh, Sanjay. Because I, I, I'm there with you. So, um, okay, uh, Stephen, where can our listeners find you? They, they've been listening to us talking about popsicles this whole time, and they know that the chocolate sea salt is the best one. Where <laughs> can they find your products? Where can they find you? Yeah, so kingofpops.com. You can find a full list of uh, all of the stores we're in. We're in Whole, whole Foods for the entire South region. Um most of the mid Atlantic as well. So you can find us in whole foods if you're kind of on the East coast. Um, and we keep everything up to date on our Instagrams, our most active plant platform. That's just at King of pops. And then if last but not least, if you happen to be a store that's interested in getting King of pops in your store, or if you're making a great, uh, product that you think should be distributed to the many amazing independent stores of the South. We'd love you to check out uh, Perfect 10 Foods on Instagram. That's just at P10 Foods um, or just search Perfect 10 Foods Atlanta. There is actually another food distributor called that, unfortunately. So make sure you're going <laughs> to the one that's uh, based out of Atlanta. But those are those are the uh, places we'd love to have you have. We'd love to come out to your event. 
Uh, so if, if you have any event that you think would be a little bit more fun with the King of Pops cart, we're booking stuff for the year and are excited to have a, um, a lot of, a lot of things on the schedule, but awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Steven, thanks so much for being on the podcast. This was wonderful. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Side Hustle to Small Business podcast, powered by Hiscox. To learn more about how Hiscox can help protect your small business through intelligent insurance solutions, visit hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X.com. And if you have a story you want to hear on this podcast, please visit hiscox.com slash share your story. I'm your host, Sanjay Parikh. You can find me on Twitter at, at Sanjay, that's S-A-N-J-A-Y, or on my website at sanjayparikh.com. 